This is Ringler Radio, where you get all the latest news and information about structured settlements from experts across the U.S. Ringler Associates, celebrating 35 years of successfully helping injured people and their families. Ringler Radio is made possible in part by the life markets that issue structured settlement annuities, including Allstate, American General, Liberty Life, MetLife, New York Life, John Hancock, and Prudential. Now join Ringler Radio host Larry Cohen. Well, welcome to Ringler Radio, everyone. I'm Larry Cohen, head of Ringler Associates Northeast Operations, and we're certainly glad you could join us today. Today we're going to be speaking about California's landmark medical malpractice and liability laws. And joining me uh, as my co-host is my Ringler colleague, Doug Merritt. Doug is a settlement annuity specialist in the San Francisco Bay Area office located in Walnut Creek, California. And he began working in the structured settlement field in 2001. Doug has extensive experience in medical malpractice, workers' compensation, and non-physical injury litigation settlement planning. That sounds interesting, Doug. Welcome to Ringler Radio. Hi, Larry. How are you doing? Doing very well. Good. And also joining us today is our special guest, Jeff Mitchell. Jeff is a partner with the firm Bostwick, Peterson, and Mitchell LLP in San Francisco. He has spent his entire legal career specializing exclusively in medical malpractice. After several years defending hospitals and physicians in malpractice cases, uh, Jeff decided to represent plaintiffs and was awarded Trial Lawyer of the Year in 2009 by the San Francisco Trial Lawyer Association. That's pretty impressive, Jeff. Uh, tell us about uh, your uh, experience in that uh, award, Jeff, and th- welcome to Ringler Radio. Morning, Larry. How was that award? Uh, what was that? Pre- where was that presented? Uh, it was at a, uh, they have an annual dinner that the association puts on and so it's kind of the big party for the group every year so it, well, that, it seems like forever ago but i think it was about a year ago well, that's very impressive uh, i'm sure you were quite uh, honored by that i was well let's talk jeff about uh a couple of things here medical injury compensation in the state of california it's controlled by the medical injury compensation reform act which is also called micra so why don't you tell us about micra how it impacts plaintiffs and the way lawyers uh, pursue uh, recoveries for for the plaintiffs around this law. Sure, Larry. Uh, MICRA is a comprehensive set of statutes that were enacted in mostly whole, but a, a lot of parts in 1975. It was enacted and signed into law as a kind of a reaction to a insurance crisis or, well, you know, it's arguable. But in any event, uh, Jerry Brown, who was governor at the time, mm-hmm. uh, was fearful that doctors would leave the state because there were runaway indemnity payments and the like, according to the insurance company. So that law was passed in 1975. What most people consider to be the kind of the touchstone of the of MICRA is the $250,000 limit uh, on uh, general damages or pain and suffering. Um, and it's basically per plaintiff, uh, it doesn't matter how many defendants you have in the case, how many acts of negligence, it's essentially a hard limit on pain and suffering damages. Hmm. That component of MICRA has been copied by, well, mimicked in some part by a number of states across the country um, as part of an aggressive tort reform in the last few years. 
that is the what most lawyers that don't specialize in medical malpractice in California basically think MICRA is, is the 250 limit. And obviously, it's an important component of it. But there are a number of other um, provisions of MICRA uh, that actually impact the day-to-day litigation of those cases more than the cap. Um, uh, one, one is uh, Business and Professions Code 6146, which essentially uh, sets forth the attorney's fees in, those, in medical malpractice cases. And as you might imagine, they're uh, limited by law, and they're substantially lower than you would see in a typical personal injury case. Is there, so is there, a, sliding, is there a sliding scale? Yes, it's a... I always call it an uh, ascending, descending scale. So at the bottom, the lower numbers, the percentage is higher on the first $50,000 or $100,000, what have you. As it goes up, the recovery goes up, the attorney's fee percentage declines precipitously. So, for example, it, between one hundred and $600,000, it's 25%, and everything on top of 600000 it's 15%. So, well, let me ask you a question about that, because sure. it's, do you find that that's a disincentive on some plaintiff lawyers to push, push for more recovery because the fees are going to be lower, or or does that not impact that at all? I don't, it, it doesn't impact me since it's all I've ever done, and I, you know, obviously I want to get as much money for my clients as I can. Mm-hmm. I think it impacts, the fee structure impacts who is taking malpractice cases and how many people want to deal with them, but in terms of... Um, where cases settle at in terms of value, I don't think it has a significant impact. I think once you get in, people are ethical and are going to do the right thing and work as hard as they can for their client, regardless of whether or not there's going to be a fee, you know, uh, break, so to speak. Interesting. Interesting. Doug? Jeff, hey there. Um, do you attribute the, I don't know if you've noticed this trend, but do you attribute the trend of uh, fewer malpractice cases seem to be moving forward, but the ones that do uh, tend to be larger? What are you attributing that to, the fee structure, as we just discussed, the provisions in MICRA? I think that it's it's a function of a number of things, but I think your observation's right, and it's just borne out by the data also, Larry, that there are fewer malpractice cases being filed every year in California, and therefore fewer claims, and therefore fewer indemnity payments. However, the trend, and they've done large, what are called large loss studies, mm-hmm. uh, and it's at, some of the best ones have been done by the insurance uh, companies, you know, E&O carriers themselves, where they they do large loss studies. And, and what the data shows is you're getting fewer claims, but the types of cases you're seeing are more, um, uh, they're larger in terms of injury, they're more catastrophic, and therefore the indemnity payments are larger. And uh, I think the reason for fewer cases is simply put, you know, that $250,000 cap in real dollars is about $50,000 the last time I checked. And the cases are being becoming more expensive to litigate due to the cost of experts and the like and court fees and associated transcript costs and what have you. So the gestalt of it is, is fewer people want to take cases that are not, you know, uh, anything but seven, eight-figure cases. They're just not attractive in an economic sense. So I think that the the collective plaintiff bar is really kind of soured on taking uh, a lot of malpractice cases. So it leaves the people like me and my partners and other 
prominent firms, we kind of we have a market share where we get the larger cases. But the run-of-the-mill case you used to see that I used to see as a defense lawyer 10, 15 years ago, you're just not seeing as many of those, of those cases. You're seeing large uh, injury cases now. Interesting. Very interesting. You you made a you made a comparison, and in, in, uh, speaking about that, you said the the two hundred fifty thousand dollar cap is about the equivalent to fifty thousand dollars. You mean because there hasn't been any uh, inflationary adjustment since the micro provisions were enacted? That's right. There's yeah. you know, and then there's constantly a push and pull, you know, between the you know uh, the California Chamber of Commerce and you know other. Uh, insurance industry groups, and then the people on our side, the trial lawyers, et cetera, consumer groups, you know, we want a cost of living adjustment placed in or an abolition of the cap or an increase in the hard cap. And a lot of states uh, that have passed tort reform with a cap do have a cost of living escalator in the cap, but it's not the case in California. Well, it sounds like uh, what you're saying was that Jerry Brown, back when he was governor, uh, went against the typical Democratic grain by putting in these caps, uh, with Jerry now running again for the governorship uh, against, I guess, Meg Whitman. How do you feel the current political climate out there in California is going to be dealing with the issues that are important to you in, in Micra? Um, I, you know, that's a question, Larry, that, that we, you know, and the trial lawyers spend a lot of time, especially those of us in leadership positions in terms of lobbying and advocacy and talking to elected officials, we, you know, we're kind of at a crossroads. We don't really know what to do. Um, and we're we're trying to figure out, you know, how the health care reform bill impacts what we do. The political climate right now in California, frankly, is unless it has anything to do with the state budget, the people in Sacramento don't really care yeah, exactly. <laughs> because the fiscal house needs to be put in order. But I think, um, as always, we may, we're going to make a push to try to get some equilibrium in this, the system for malpractice victims, because frankly, in my opinion, it's it'd be having been a former defense lawyer, and I'm not a ideologue, uh, you know, plaintiff lawyer through and through. I try to do a good job for my clients, but looking at it objectively, the system's seriously tilted in favor of uh, medical defendants in these cases in California. It's just a fact of life. But but you're also saying, I think, that it doesn't look like to be a climate for change right now, and so I, that 250 probably will stay in place for a while. I don't anticipate any, you know, for example, Larry, several years ago when Gray Davis was governor, we essentially had a commitment from him that the cap would be raised and it got to his desk and he wouldn't sign it. Uh, you know, it cleared the, the chambers of the legislature. And because there was a lot of push, you know, a lot of money came from the insurance industry. Uh, so that was the best chance we had in the last few years. And I, I think the climate is just so tumultuous for right now with health care reform and the California budget that I think it's something that's not going to be on the front uh, burner, so to speak, in the next legislative session. I think that's something we're working on, obviously. Terrific. Well, let's switch gears right now to a very significant case in which you and your firm were involved, and that's the Prince versus Lassen Medical Group. Uh, this is a medical malpractice case that took place in Chasta County, California, and I understand that's north of San Francisco near uh, Redding, California. Tell us about the case. And, uh, you know, I heard that the judge was trying to dissuade you from pursuing the matter, uh, saying you can't win a malpractice case up here in Redding. Is that is that true? Yeah, it, it uh, Larry, it's, you know, it's one of those cases that, um, in retrospect, taught me a lot about being a lawyer, but... <laughs> Um, yeah, essentially, it was a, I represented a, a gentleman in his mid-40s who was a, 
uh, worked for a agency that contracted with the county, and essentially he drove around to job sites physically and mentally disabled people, and they did work and such. And he had a uh, condition called atrial fibrillation, which is a very common cardiac condition, which causes abnormal heart rhythms, which can lead to development of clots on the atria, which the fear being they break off and lodge in the brain. So this, this gentleman had a, a small stroke, uh, which turned out to be from atrial fibrillation, but the stroke was so small that it had completely resolved, and he was back at work in a week or two. But to prophylactically treat him, knowing that he had a atrial fibrillation, they put him on Coumadin, which is a very Life common center. drug that I think two or three million people in this country take every day. And they were watching him, monitoring him. He he. The fear with Coumadin is. If you have too much, it's too therapeutic, your blood gets too thin. Mm -hmm. And if it's not therapeutic enough, it clots. So you try to achieve a balance. Well, that balance was being achieved until he went to have a minor outpatient sinus surgery, um, which usually creates problems for anticoagulation. There's a standard way it's supposed to be, supposed to be treated uh, around a small surgery like this in a patient who had had a prior stroke, and there's a ton of published well-acknowledged uh, guidelines about it, you're switched to another drug called Lovenox, which is a uh, what's called a low-molecular-weight heparin. It's got a very short half-life, and you can basically have it working until day of surgery, cut it off, operate, make sure the patient's not bleeding from the surgery, and put them back on. The theory being you close the window of time that they're not anticoagulated. Mm -hmm. Well, the defendants in that case, it was kind of a... Keystone cops kind of thing, but neither of them thought they were, you know, handling this for the patient. They were blaming the other one. The gentleman didn't get Lovenox, and he had a major devastating stroke, which led to a lawsuit and two verdicts. Mm -hmm. That was essentially the case. But the significance of it was not so much in a case uh, sense, but it was it, it, Shasta County is probably the most conservative county. Uh, north of Fresno in the entire state. Mm -hmm. um, Bush George Bush won 72% of the vote there even in 2004. Wow. Um, and there hadn't been a... It's a you know, for rural California, it's a large county. It's the largest city north of Sacramento in the state. But in any event, there hadn't been a malpractice verdict there in 35 years. And there had been, you know, probably 100 tried. So right prior to trial, the judge told me that I should take a, a almost offensive number a reporting limits number and go away because I couldn't win a case up there on a case where I had had a large sum of my own money invested and my client had a good case and we had been fighting the fight and he told me to take the the short money because I couldn't win and I said judge I I got to do what I got to do and I went and tried it. You took on the challenge. You took on the challenge. Sure. I'm I'm familiar with uh, quite a bit of it, Jeff, as you know. Uh, you know I know I know it was a kind of a long. A long battle for you, but was there anything in particular that stuck out as uh, as being uh, the most difficult hurdle? Uh, getting a jury uh, that would up there that would that's a town that respects doctors. It's a very close knit town. Everybody knows everybody, so it was very difficult to get a jury. Uh, that could be fair and evaluate the evidence, uh, even though I knew no matter who I got, they'd be politically conservative, but getting a jury that could kind of cut through the preconceptions about the quality of medical care up there and how things work. And plus, you know, I wanted large sums of money to take care of this gentleman. So in that 
conservative type of jurisdiction, that was the biggest challenge, is getting a jury that could be potentially receptive to some large numbers to pay for medical care for this gentleman. Tell us, uh, Jeff, about the outcome of the case. Uh, There may be confidentiality issues, but tell us about the outcome of the case and what the outcome said to you about the jury system that we have in this country. Um, Well, the verdict was... I think it was, Doug might remember more than me, I think it was about $3.2 million in present cash value, mm-hmm. um, which was at the time, and I think still is probably the largest, it's the largest malpractice verdict ever in the, what's called the North State, north of Sacramento. Right. Um, and it was very, very significant because, you know, people hadn't seen numbers like that out of anywhere north of the Golden Gate Bridge, frankly, in a long time. And um, it was significant that it showed that, hey, if you have a good case and get honest people on a jury and present your case well, and you're a true victim of malpractice, that the system does work. And I've said that many times in regards to that case. And it was a long, hard-fought case. It took, I think, eight or nine weeks to try. Uh, But it said a lot about the integrity of jurors. Well, I think it also probably said a lot about the advocacy that you presented as well. So uh, you should take some very... uh large credit for that, Jeff. I, I spent a lot of time away from my family, Larry. <laughs> well, then, then, you know, sometimes it's worth it. And in this case, it looks like it was. It was. Well, let's take a quick break right now, and then we'll be back in a minute with more discussion about medical malpractice in California with Doug Merritt and attorney Jeff Mitchell. This is Ringler Radio from Ringler Associates. Quite simply, the undisputed leader in structured settlements for 35 years. Ringler Radio is celebrating its sixth year right here on the Legal Talk Network, produced by broadcast professionals. Ringler Associates, the only broker you need. Listen to all the Ringler Radio shows. Just go to ringlerassociates.com or legaltalknetwork.com and click on Ringler Radio and choose a topic. Since 1975, Wrangler Associates has provided the finest structured settlement services to all parties involved in the settling of physical injury claims. Experience counts. Over $23 billion in structures benefiting 166,000 injured individuals and their families. And one of the few companies that truly enjoys the trust of all parties in the settlement process. Did you know you can download Wrangler Radio to your iPod? Just go to iTunes and subscribe to the Legal Talk Network. It's free. We invite you to listen to other shows on the Legal Talk Network. It's free at www.legaltalknetwork.com. Did you know Ringler Radio is one of the top three rated shows in iTunes? Thanks to all of our listeners who download all the Ringler Radio shows. Welcome back to Ringler Radio. Glad you could join us. I'm joined by my Ringler colleague, Doug Merritt, from our Bay Area office in Walnut Creek, California, and attorney Jeff Mitchell, partner with the firm Bostwick, Peterson & Mitchell in San Francisco. Well, Jeff, you've been on both the defense and the plaintiff side of medical malpractice cases. What role have you seen along the way for structured settlements uh, in those cases from both perspectives? How have structured settlements been utilized and how have they helped? Well, Larry, I mean, it, it's, I, I, I talk to clients every day about structured settlements, and I can tell you from a practical perspective why. 
Uh, first and foremost, it's essentially required of, of a good malpractice lawyer in California, given uh, CCP 667.7, which if you get a verdict like the Prince case, uh, the defendants don't have to write a check, in essence, to fund the verdict. They get to buy a, a payment. They get to buy essentially an annuity to pay it out over time, mm-hmm. which the, the genesis of that law is to save insurance companies money. So it has a very real effect on what I do because the, I always tell my clients the real value of your case isn't what the value is. It's what it can cost to buy it mm-hmm. by way of an annuity or structured settlement. So it's a, I mean, it's a very important um, consideration in every case, particularly the large cases, which most of mine at this point are. It's vitally important to, you know, get your clients educated with respect to their utility and the fact that um, it's something that's going to be discussed at a mediation and or after a verdict. Um, also, it's real important because I, you know, if I get a big case um, and I'm evaluating that case and I want to get an idea what kind of value I'm looking at, I pick up the phone and call Doug and start having the discussions about uh, the medical condition of the plaintiff, the age of the plaintiff, the needs of the plaintiff. Um, that's a discussion that takes place early on. Uh, in most of my cases, um, on the defense side, it's it's almost used the same way. Uh, the defense lawyers will have a large case that there might be some potential risk exposure on. They want to call somebody like Doug and, and get the same information from him as I'm getting. Mm-hmm. Uh, because they need to know how much to get uh, in terms of uh, authority, reserve set. Insurance company is going to want to know what their exposure is. And the only way you can really determine that in California is by way of getting rated ages and getting annuity quotes. Sure. So it is incredibly I, – I, I tell people often I spend – 10 to 15 percent of my time talking to Doug. <laughs> well, I can assume just like with lawyers or doctors or anyone else in any profession, uh, some uh, brokers are better than others and some uh, professionals are more uh, more complete or efficient than others. And uh, I'm sure you've used quite a few. And uh, I think that's clear that uh, if we can go ahead and get competent people on either side of the case that know how to do structured settlements and know how to help evaluate life care plans and, and, and get to the nitty-gritty, the cases have a greater opportunity to settle, don't they? And they have a greater opportunity to come together. Absolutely. And, you know, there there's been cases over the years if Doug has the two the defendants and the defendant and the plaintiff in the case, i.e. me and the Kaiser or whoever it is I'm suing, oftentimes, uh, you know, Doug is representing both sides, and those are actually cases where I think you get the best uh, yield for your client because everybody's working towards a common goal. I mean, in the old days, uh, and I think there's still some people out there that think this, but it's more of a vestige of the past. But in the old days, plaintiff's lawyers were skeptical of any structured settlement broker that worked with institutional defendants in cases, which... I never understood then, and I really don't understand now. But um, when it's a collaborative process, I think that's when it works best for the plaintiff, frankly. Well, it all comes down to credibility like it does in most everything. And uh, if you can trust the person you're dealing with, that you're going to get a fair shake, and they're going to look at the marketplace, uh, as you said, get age ratings and and test that marketplace to get the best result for your client and uh, representing the defense to do it in a fair fashion, uh, I think that's always the best way to do it. Right. 
Jeff, you'd agree. It's a, you know, it's a pretty transparent process. Uh, it would just suggest that it bridges the expectations on both sides, especially when you have something like uh, 667 provisions, because uh, it, it is what it is. It's not a, an advocacy uh, on our part. Uh, on one side or the other, we're we're creating a scenario that can be presented so everybody knows where the damages are as a result of MICRA, uh, and therefore helps facilitate uh, a meaningful settlement. Right, That'd be a fair I think statement. Right, and I agree, and I think that that dealing structured settlements is incredibly transparent, especially in malpractice a malpractice situation because the code requires you mm-hmm. to utilize it essentially. And, I mean, everybody's on the same page. We're dealing with right. the same stuff. Right. So, well, said. Yeah. well let, let's get beyond that, and then let's talk about the ultimate result, which is you do settle a case, or it goes to verdict, and you have a post-verdict settlement, and your client does receive a structured settlement. How, how have you felt along the way that those structured settlements have helped the peace of mind of your clients as they move forward? Oh, I've... I've uh, I mean, I have... It, it, it's interesting you ask that. I, I have a client now... Well, a client now. She's a friend. I represented her, God knows how long ago, eight, nine years ago. And I got her a, a fairly significant structure. And I think it was in the neighborhood of a million dollars. And she's still alive and able to work and et cetera. And, you know, she and I are close friends now. And we were having lunch the other day. And she was telling me how meaningful it is for her to not have to worry about her money, you know, losing value in the stock market yes. or real estate or just spending the cash sitting in a bank that she, month after month after month, gets a consistent payment stream, and she doesn't have to worry about her livelihood. It's not like the woman's getting rich, but there's a lot of peace of mind that comes from that. So You, you know, I, I find, and I know Doug probably as well, uh, you can talk all you want about interest rates or low interest rates or other competitive uh, vehicles out there. The peace of mind of knowing you're getting a check and you're getting a check every month, for example, uh, rather than looking at the marketplace and trying to uh, pay fees to different investment advisors uh, is tremendous. And when when people sit back and think about that, as you've seen with your clients, uh, it makes going forward a, a heck of a lot easier. Yeah, and I've, and I've seen the flip side, Larry, where yeah. I've had clients that Doug was involved in this where give me cash, you know. They wanted the cash, and um, they got the cash over my strenuous objection. And I can tell you, I've had a number of them. Um, and I always tell them, I don't have a dog in the hunt, right? <laughs> with respect to whether you structure or not, I have a dog in the hunt only in the sense I want you to do what's right for yourself and what's safe. Um, and but I've had many clients that have lost a large portion, almost all of their uh, cash corpus that they chose not to structure in the stock market. And that's tragic. And, you know, you don't want to come back and say, I told you so. But, but, but you know, there is a lot so. of that. There is a lot of that I told you. And, and it's, it's not stated, I understand. But uh, it, those are very, very important tales that you can then pass on to your next client. Sure. Exactly. Well, what about uh, yourself in terms of fees that you receive in these cases? Have you ever structured any of the fees uh, along the way? I haven't. Um, and, I, and I think that's just more a function of kind of the operation of my firm at this point, but um, that's something that, you know, I obviously need to do, and I think it's in my economic best interest and my family's, um, and, you know, that's something I'm going to do in the future. I just have to get off the dime and do it. I know a lot of people, lawyers that 
probably make you know one fifth amount of fee fee income I make a year that have structured fees consistently over the years and have done quite well with the arrangement. It's been they I've never heard of anyone that structured their fees that didn't think it was a good idea later. Well, you know what's what's interesting is that. Uh People who have structured their fees have set themselves up for the future, and that deferred income opportunity with a structured fee, interestingly, is only available to contingency fee plaintiff lawyers. So it's it's kind of a unique aspect of of the business, and uh, those lawyers that really understand it pretty well uh, that make use of it have really done done very well for themselves. So I would encourage that for sure. Absolutely. And uh, last time we were together, Larry was with. Uh uh, Mr. Robert Wood, uh, yes. speaking about this very topic and, and the, the various components. So that was also a great show to uh, to go over the uh, characteristics of attorney fees and their uniqueness. And like you say, the last professional group uh, that's allowed to do a deferred compensation like that. Yeah, it's terrific. It's terrific. Jeff, one of the things we were moving along after this was uh, a little more specific to, again, um, medical malpractice in California and the periodic payment hearings. Um, maybe you could talk a little bit about it from your perspective, what it means. I know in, in Prince, uh, there was a, an attempt to do that, but perhaps you could go into a little detail on how, on how that process is uh, facilitated yeah, in California. It, yeah, sure. The, the, we, we, as you know, we've been talking about six, six, seven point seven, Larry, which yes. probably doesn't mean much to you, but what, what is part of my credit is, I mentioned it, it basically mandates that in any case there's a verdict of more than 50000 in terms of an award of, I might be missing something, but it, it's over a certain threshold number, which is low, and it deals with future economic damages. The defendant is entitled to periodicize that mm-hmm. number, that judgment. So in order to invoke invoke the power of 667.7, the defendant's got to follow a very specific procedure. Otherwise, a enterprising plaintiff's lawyer could take advantage of the failure to do so. But what usually happens is an answer is filed where they state as an affirmative defense, which I don't know if that's legally viable or not, the fact that they're going to periodicize if they lose. Then there's um, uh, so essentially they're putting you on quote notice, close quote. Next, um, they uh, in a pretrial motion they um, will t- inform the judge, hey, by the way, we are going to invoke 667.7 if we lose. So the judge goes, well, okay, good for you. Thank you. <laughs> then uh, the procedure after a verdict essentially is the first thing the defense lawyer are g- generally taught to do is stand up and say, I'd like to stay judgment and uh, ask for a 667.7 hearing where they come up with a way to fund a payment stream to satisfy the judgment, and the judge conducts a hearing uh, in a way that's supposed to conform to the evidence and tries to construct a payment stream that will compensate the plaintiff uh, for the injury, and it's supposed to be based on the evidence, but the judge has fairly wide discretion about how they engineer the numbers. But that's essentially the... Mm -hmm procedure in a nutshell. Yeah, it's an interesting interesting process that, that happens out here. Um, most often, you would suggest that it benefits the defendants, Jeff, by by allowing that option, or have you seen plaintiff attorneys elect to uh, to periodicize an award? I don't, uh, well, I don't, I don't know of many plaintiff lawyers that will make the voluntary election to periodicize 
the award or have the judge periodicize it because then you don't you you don't have guarantees and different components of the structure that you might want. I mean, there's the judge's wide discretion, but usually um, those cases are settled post-verdict anyways without a, a court-engineered payment judgment. Well, it sounds like uh, with the political climate out there in California, you've got a lot of uncertainty moving forward and uh, things like the periodic payment hearings and the uh, the $250,000 caps and MICRA are going to be around for a while. So I'm sure you're dealing with it and you're, you're you're doing the best you can out there as you all move forward through your trial lawyer organizations, which I understand you're on the board of several, to uh, to try to help uh, change the climate out there. But uh, it looks like it's a tough road ahead. Don't you agree, Jeff? It's uh, tough. Um, and I think in certain ways it's going to get tougher. But I think that the resolve of the lawyers that do a lot of these cases like me, and there's a number of us in California that are do a lot of it and they're great advocates, we we try to work harder and work smarter, you know, as time goes on, and enable to, in an effort to try to get people what they deserve. Because I think people get thrown under the bus unless they have good advocates. Um, well, exactly, and that's what that's what you're all about, and that's why we're glad you, we had you on the show today. So, well, thank you. Let's talk about uh, how people can reach you if they if they need to. How would they get a hold of you? And I understand you also have a blog out there. Why don't you tell us about how to reach you and. Uh, uh, I'm not a huge blogger. I don't have the time, but <laughs> the best way to get a hold of me is the old-fashioned way at my office, and that's 415-421-8300 or my email, which I spend 20 hours a day looking at, and that's jmitchell, J-M-I-T-C-H-E-L-L, at Bostwick Firm, B-O-S-T-W-I-C-K-F-I-R-M.com. Terrific, terrific. And Doug, how about yourself? Like Jeff, uh, in the office, uh, 800-352-1912 or uh, electronically as well, uh, it's jmerritt at ringlerassociates.com. Well, great. And in case uh, you're a first-time listener out there, you should know that every Ringler radio show can be downloaded from our website, ringlerassociates.com. You can also reach all of the Ringler Associates ourselves at, in our various offices, as you would with Doug uh, on that website. Or you can go to the Legal Talk Network at LegalTalkNetwork.com and download uh, this show or even play it on your uh, on your iPod. And that's uh, what a lot of people are doing these days. So in the meantime, let me thank you, Jeff, again for joining us and Doug. And for the rest of you out there, thanks for listening. Now go out and have a great day. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network. Its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thanks for listening to Ringler Radio. In its sixth year on Legal Talk Network with over a half a million listeners, Ringler Associates, where experience counts. Since 1975, Ringler Associates has provided the finest structured settlement services to all parties involved in physical injury claims. Ringler Radio is made possible in part by the life markets that issue structured settlement annuities, including Allstate, American General, Liberty Life, MetLife, New York Life, John Hancock, and Prudential.